Welcome to Twill, the Week in Health Law, the podcast of record for the discussion of health law and policy. I'm recording this episode on November 8th, 2018. Uh, today, I welcome Kirk J. Nara, a partner at Wiley Rain in DC. Kirk specializes in privacy information security litigation and counseling, along with a variety of healthcare insurance fraud and compliance issues. He serves on editorial boards for both the Health Lawyer and BNA's Privacy and Security Law Report and teaches privacy courses at American University School of Law. In short, he's viewed as one of the nation's finest healthcare privacy and security lawyers. Uh, you were last heard here an embarrassingly long 120 episodes ago. That was in episode 28. So both apologies for the neglect and a huge welcome back, Kirk. Well, thank you for having me. I'm impressed that that's uh, you've had so many episodes. That's a lot of that's a lot of content. Yeah, I think maybe some repeats. I don't know. <laughs> so, I mean, I suppose one of the reasons I've been neglectful is that. With with all of the churn in health law and health policy, uh, privacy and security has been relatively quiet. Um, but I wonder whether um, it's quiet on the surface, but there's been a lot of of, of paddling underneath. Um, and in that regard, I thought we might start by talking briefly about uh, the European General Data Protection Regulation. Uh, the GDPR, which came into effect on May 25th. Many of our websites and, and apps have all stopped working or um, uh, you had to agree to a whole new uh, series of disclaimers and so on. And there was, I think, a certain sort of level of shock around the middle of the year from people who weren't properly educated. But frankly, Europe's had robust privacy law for a while, courtesy of the 1995 directive. So what are you, what seems to be different this time around? What what how are you, how are you having to approach your clients and educate them on the GDPR? That's a couple of different questions and I guess let me just hit one of the things you said first Nick which is I think privacy and security has actually been very active. It's just that there's been so many other things going on in the healthcare world that are you know, more more significant <laughs> yep. that it's uh, you know it's 19th on a list of on a, on a very long priority list. But um, so yeah, so one of the biggest developments in the privacy space generally this year and 2018 has been frankly perhaps the most significant privacy year we've had since privacy law started to become a development um, is the GDPR. And uh, as you indicated with your question, it's been kind of an interesting situation where I'm going to give a you know a number that's not a precise number, but 75% of the GDPR has actually been law in the EU since 1995. And you know, lots of companies paid attention to it, and lots of companies not didn't necessarily. And we now have this new law, and it certainly has triggered at least a lot more attention in the United States. And I think one of the reasons for that is that we now have under GDPR an explicit attempt to reach outside of Europe for privacy regulations. And so uh, companies in the U.S. can be impacted by these rules, um, even if they don't have a physical location in the EU, if they are essentially offering goods and services in the EU. And so a lot of the uh, questions I was getting, you know, all of 2018, an astonishing number of them coming in, you know, April and May with a May 25th deadline approaching <laughs> yes. dealt with 
you know, does this thing in fact matter to me? And do I have to be concerned about it? And that became a very tricky issue for lots of companies. You mentioned, um, you know, having websites that don't work. One of the reactions, not particularly a healthcare reaction, but one of the reactions that's been interesting has been a number of sites. It's, for some reason, it seems particularly prominent in sort of small media entities, you know, local newspapers in the United States where companies have basically blocked access to their websites from Europe. Um, strikes me as a significant, overly cautious reaction, um, but that's been one effect. The, the the seeing new kinds of privacy notices was a dramatic effect on people just because they got so many of them around May 25th. I suspect that most people did what we've been doing all along, which is you clicked agree and moved on and didn't think about it anymore. And so from a consumer perspective, it's not really clear, particularly for consumers in the United States, that it's really made any difference of, of any material kind. Um, for healthcare companies, it's been an interesting discussion. You know, obviously lots of healthcare is still local. You know, the idea that a, a, a family physician in Omaha is going to be subject to the GDPR is, you know, not not likely to happen. <laughs> That's just not a relevant consideration. Um, there was discussion about, you know, whether a hospital, the example I've been using in my class was, you know, a hospital in Vail, Colorado has a German skier who breaks her leg on the slopes and is ambulance to the Vail Hospital. The fact that they're treating a German skier doesn't make them subject to GDPR. Um, so a lot of healthcare in the U.S. was not subject to GDPR, but then you had people who were uh, people and entities who were tr actively trying to recruit patients and consumers from the EU. There certainly are facilities that do that. We have you know international developments. We have medical research going on worldwide. So there certainly were implications for the healthcare industry, um, but you know in some ways healthcare was affected somewhat less than you know more broad-based global businesses just because. So much of the healthcare industry, certainly in the U.S., is is still relatively local. I think I remember reading that uh, there was some some surprises, like some of the um, the health records companies had databases in the EU sure. territories and stuff like that, which I thought was kind of interesting. Yeah, it's, it, it also created a funny situation where you had, you know, you had vendors to, for example, hospital companies, to hospitals, where the vendors would send to their client a document that said, oh, you have to sign this saying, you know, we're subject to GDPR. And the hospital would say, well, we're not subject to GDPR. And you had the situation where the vendor was subject to it, even though their client wasn't, or at least that was the, the that was the possibility. So we did have some weird connections there. Again, I'm, you know, my, my view, just to overgeneralize, is that if a hospital uses a, an electronic health records vendor and that vendor does something that somehow is connected to the EU, that doesn't necessarily convert, in fact, probably doesn't convert the hospital into being subject to those rules. But that led to a lot of the confusion and it led to a lot of the anxiety leading up to May 25th and certainly continuing to this point in time. The fact that the GDPR allows at least the possibility of enormously high penalties certainly has made people, you know, pay attention. I am not expecting a random hospital in Pittsburgh or in St. Louis or in Missoula, Montana, who has three patients who came from the EU to be high on the list of any EU data protection authority. And so, so you know, some of these issues are just a practical question of how you handle this data. But, you know, it has raised for lots of companies 
you know, the, the debate issue in privacy, which is how do you deal with the fact that data is moving everywhere all over the world and that it's very hard to localize where a piece of data is going to be. And that's just making these international privacy rules complicated and hard, you know, hard to implement, particularly as more and more companies, excuse me, more and more countries come on board with them. EU is obviously a big one and a very important one, but it is by no means the only one who's having developments. And we're seeing, you know, countries pretty much all over the world implement privacy laws which tend to be generally stricter than the laws we have for the most part in the United States. You mentioned the fines, uh, which certainly have numbers attached to them that even the largest uh, U.S. companies are going to um, notice. Um, we know that uh, extraterritoriality is an ex- explicit part of the regulation. Uh, we know that enforcement is uh, a lot more, it's going to be a lot more consistent, centralized, and so on. Um, what about the substantive pieces? You know, the, the, the stuff that wasn't in the 75% or wasn't as clearly in the 75% of, of stuff that was in the 1995 directive. What sorts of things have your clients been sort of noticing uh, about, uh, no pun intended, uh, about uh, the substantive uh, issues in in the regulation? Yeah, and, and I might uh, take issue with one of your, your premises there, which is that, that enforcement is going to be consistent. I don't have any sense that enforcement is necessarily going to be consistent because you still have a, you know, you have the, the, the lead enforcement is going to fr- come from the data protection authority in a particular country. And there's no, you know, there's no necessary reason to think that Spain is going to act the same way as Germany is going to act the same way as, as, as France. And so, um, you know, in the same way that, that you know, U.S. attorney, uh, state attorneys general generally are acting on general consumer protection authority and might have very different results. We may very much see different interpretations among the authorities. But um, putting that aside for a second, I think that a couple of provisions are coming to the forefront very quickly. Um, one of them is, has to do with individual rights. And there are a number of individual rights that are present in the GDPR, um, right to access information, the, the right to be forgotten, which is a, a new idea. Um, there are more people exercising those rights than perhaps we might have expected. And that is, you know, that's operationally challenging for companies. And so that's been, you know, that's been an ongoing issue. And that was something that kicked in very quickly. The other thing that happened very quickly is the new provision in the GDPR dealing with security breach notification, where, you know, Europe hasn't really had security breach notification before. Um, there's a provision provision in the GDPR that requires notification to the government data protection authorities within 72 hours of a security breach with essentially no risk of harm threshold. So any kind of security breach that you have, you're supposed to report to the government authorities in 72 hours. Um, That is A, very fast, B, a very broad standard, C, the opposite of sort of how we treat this in the U.S., whereas U.S., you have obligations to notify individuals if there's been a breach involving their information. And then maybe you notify the government after you've notified the individuals, but but it's the notice to the individuals that drives the notice to the government. Under GDPR, you notify the government, and then maybe some of the time you're going to also notify individuals. And so, again, that was something that could happen on May 26th. There wasn't going to be enforcement on May 26th, 
but you could have a security breach that needed to be dealt with on May 26th, or you could have a customer access request on May 26th. And so I think those are the two provisions, the individual rights and the security breach that have really had a had a quick and immediate impact on a, a pretty broad range of companies. And obviously that's quite different from HIPAA breach notification. Correct. Um, I mean, HIPAA, HIPAA is very similar to most of the state laws, which is you figure out using a risk assessment if you're supposed to notify the individuals and when you notify the individuals, there may also be an obligation to notify the government, but it's the individual notice with a risk of harm threshold that is the driving force. Whereas, as I said, in the EU, you basically tell the government about everything, and then there's some smaller percentage of those where you're going to have to notify the individuals. And so it's, again, it's that the, the speed, but both the speed and the breadth of what you have to report is the real challenge in the EU. And, and, and frankly, I don't, you know, I think they went overboard. I think the 72 hours is too fast, and I think they re- they're requiring reporting of too many things, um, too many things where just nothing actually happened. And so I think even the regulators have started to give some indications that companies are maybe reporting more than they were expecting and that they're being overwhelmed and dealing with them. You know, I think that's going to work its way out over time, but it's, it's that that's just had an immediate and very quick effect on companies. Well, I'm assuming that both listeners are truly impressed that we've, uh, we're 10 minutes into a health podcast and pretty much we're in agreement that the GDP doesn't really have much impact on health. But I think there is a much broader point where that's not the case. While GDPR may not be particularly applicable to traditional healthcare entities, if you like, HIPAA-covered entities in the U.S., the kinds of health data, privacy and security issues that particularly I'm most interested in these days are the health data that lies outside of the HIPAA protected zone, the, you know, however you want to describe it, the medically inflected data. It's sort of orthogonal privacy and security, if you like. Um, and we're looking at, you know, large tech companies from Alphabet to Apple, uh, Amazon, and the list goes on. Uh, that have an awful lot of health data. It's just not health data that necessarily um, is uh, impacted by HIPAA. And in that vein, I thought we'd move from uh, the GDPR to, um, I guess, something that that people have been sort of viewing uh, as a sort of GDPR light Uh, which is the new California Consumer Privacy Act of 2018, a major piece of legislation in the the state of resistance, which also has some really interesting substantive provisions and also has some extraterritorial effects. So I wonder if that was a contrast or a comparison that, 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 that you would make. Yeah, I mean, I think the California law certainly is being compared a lot to GDPR. And it's there certainly are companies that have to deal with GDPR and California. There are lots and lots of U.S. companies that don't have to worry about GDPR who do have to worry about California. And I think the comparison, you said GDPR light, that is a phrase I've heard a lot, but it's actually not, I think it's not necessarily that useful. It's, it's, Similar to GDPR in its general scope, which is it's intended to be a largely one-size-fits-all overall privacy law dealing covering all information. But once you get past that 
premise, they diverge pretty significantly. And so one of the things that we're debating in the privacy community, and in fact, it was the the topic of my class yesterday on privacy law was, you know, if you did GDPR compliance, how far along does that get you with your California compliance? And a lot of people are thinking that it really doesn't help you all that much. I mean, it may have helped you because you did a very organized effort to go through your company's data, assuming you focused on the U.S. side and not just a global or EU presence, but that then implementing the actual rules are going to be very different. GDPR has has a lot of individual rights, as I mentioned, but also has a lot of initial rules about what companies can and cannot do with data. California is almost entirely individual rights driven in the sense that there's very little limitation up front about what companies can and cannot do, but there's a lot of things that customers can initiate on their own. And so one of the biggest challenges I think companies are going to have under California law, um, aside from the confusion and aside from the ambiguity and aside from the fact that the law is likely to change again, is how they're going to adjust their practices to deal with a situation where, you know, one, ten, a hundred, a thousand, a million consumers could individually alter how they handle data. And I think that's going to be a really difficult challenge for a lot of companies, and it will lead some of them to change all of their practices because they won't be able to handle 37% of their customers asking for a change. They're going to have the question of, do they implement a program just for California or do they implement a U.S. program? Um that's going to depend both on their operations and on whether they think that other states are going to pass California-like laws or use California as an excuse to pass their own law. You know, so lots and lots of open issues, um, and it's leading not only to that California debate and that operational debate, and then it jumps also to creating a national debate at the U.S. level about whether there should be national privacy legislation. So again, just an incredible amount of um, new and significant developments in the privacy space generally in 2018. Yeah, and I guess uh, another contrast with HIPAA is that HIPAA is extremely light itself on individual rights. Uh, there's no right of action and, uh, and very and relatively few uh, rights that are actually granted to the individual. Also, I suppose I would I would contrast the GDPR, indeed before that with the directive, with the California Act, as uh, what I describe as um, uh, upstream protections and downstream protections. So uh, European law has a lot of upstream protections with regard to to the type of collection that's permitted, um, uh, collection and use um, uh, restrictions and so on. Whereas the California model is much more about downstream rights, you know, the right to know, the right to opt out, a right of deletion, service equity if you exercise those privacy rights and so on. Yeah, no, I, I I think that's right. You know, and in fact, the last one you mentioned, that right to equity is going to be one of the most interesting ones to watch, which is... And, and again, I did this in my class the other day where we, we took, there's four or five different provisions in the California law that basically say you can't be, dis- a consumer can't be discriminated against if they exercise their rights. Companies can, however, do certain things if it's not discrimination based on actual differences in how their data is being used. And then they can also g- offer incentives to companies, but they can't charge a different price. And it's just, it's incredibly difficult to figure out what those words all mean. I can tell that, you know, as, as somebody who, who has a few more years before retirement, this is going to be helpful to get me closer to retirement because we'll be dealing with those issues for at least five years or so, probably more.
more in figuring out how can companies give incentives to consumers to use their data? How can they encourage com- uh, consumers to allow them to use data while at the same time not running afoul of these anti-discrimination provisions? Is that very hard to make sense of those those uh, provisions at this point? And that's, that's going to be one of the challenges with California is that that law had a very peculiar history to it, a very short history to it. And so we have a law that did not go through all of the normal vetting that we usually see. And so there are a ton of confusing, ambiguous, mistaken elements in the California law. I expect we're going to see some of those things corrected before the law goes into effect. But you know, we're really not clear about that. And, and in fact, some of those issues are very specific to healthcare in terms of how much of the healthcare industry and in what way is the healthcare industry actually carved out of the California law. There were some very confusing provisions in the initial law. There was an amendment which was intended to fix those confusing provisions. My view has actually made it more confusing. And so there are real questions as to who is carved out of the California law because they're regulated by other healthcare laws. And there's also questions as to what data is carved out of the California law because it's regulated by healthcare laws. And again, the whole industry is trying to figure out what those words mean when we know they don't don't really make sense at this point. Yeah, there's some fairly broad definitions of things like biometric information in the California statute. And um, you know, perhaps we could do a whole other show sometime on these biometric statutes, such as the Illinois one that are, uh, are causing... It's even broader than... I mean, that, that that is absolutely a question. But I think before you even get to those details, there's questions about, you know, for, for example, are HIPAA business associates exempted from this law in some way? I don't know. I'm not sure at, at this point. One of the other provisions that's very unusual, and I'm, it's not clear to me that the folks in California understood enough HIPAA when they were writing this law, is that when you read the provision, one of the provisions about exemption, it applies to information that's collected under HIPAA. Yeah. And so, for example, <laughs> you, you mentioned earlier some of the technology companies and things like that. If I'm a hospital and I collect information from a patient, I think that information and that hospital is going to be exempted from the California law. But when that hospital sends that information to an Apple Watch or somewhere else to a personal health record, and I'm allowed to do that as the hospital, that information isn't protected by HIPAA anymore. But I think under this California law, it's carved out from the California law. And so that's weird, right? I mean, that's a situation where the California law is exempting information that isn't actually any longer protected by HIPAA. And I don't think that's what they meant, but I think that's what the words say right now. And I think the amendment they passed made that worse. So again, just very tricky and interesting issues that are, you know, very big picture. Are some of those companies that you mentioned even subject to this law at all if they're getting information from HIPAA covered entities? Right. And as you say, it, the the statute appears to uh, exempt to an extent covered entities, but doesn't mention the business associates. Well, it mentions them in one part. It doesn't mention them in the other. And again, the part that mentions business associates is tied to the information. Or again, the information, I don't know how you exempt information, but HIPAA doesn't always protect the same information. If it, There's lots of situations where information can start with HIPAA protection, but then based on permitted disclosure, 
disclosures, it's all of a sudden not protected anymore. Yet the California law focuses on the starting point of the information, not the ending point. And it's said, yeah, it's just, yeah. you know, so so we're trying to make sense of that. I mean, my my assumption is that what they were trying to do was say, look, if you're, if you're subject to HIPAA, you don't have to also do California, but they weren't that clear about it. And that's not what the words say right now. Yeah. So you mentioned earlier that um, big US companies were concerned about being under differential uh, regulatory systems and and how could they sort of approach that to an extent. You also mentioned the Apple Watch and clearly Apple has made security and privacy as a market differentiator for them. But I did take note of um, Tim Cook, the Apple CEO's remarks at a data conference um, last month in Brussels. Um, He delivered a blistering attack on sort of his fellow tech giants and their data practices. Uh, I think it's uh, the phrase he used was the data industrial complex. And he praised the GDPR, asking that, you know, our own information from the everyday to the deeply personal, he said, is being weaponized against us with military efficiency. Scraps of data, each one harmless enough on its own, are carefully assembled, synthesized, traded and sold. He didn't mention other companies by name, but is this an outlier position by Apple or is there a sense that the tech giants defensively maybe are are trying to get Congress to be more involved in privacy and to give them a a better kind of shelter that will take care of both their US and EU responsibilities? Yeah, I mean, I I think it's a really complicated set of moving parts that you talk about. So I think there's a couple of different variables. I think you're right that Apple has tried to be a differentiator in the market on what it does with the data that it could be using. And so Apple may have a different overall perspective, whether it's philosophy, policy, or economics, you know, we can debate, but um, they have a different role towards data than some of their, whether you call them competitors or just other people in the tech space. Then you have a couple of different perspectives on whether there should be U.S. national law. You certainly have companies, um, well, actually, let me back up for a second. There has been no pressure, no meaningful pressure prior to 2018. It's been little bits and pieces here and there, but I would say no meaningful consistent pressure at the U.S. level for a national privacy law for many, many years. And so, you know, there were there were efforts at the end of the Obama administration to think about big data issues and some of the points you mentioned earlier about how much healthcare data there is that isn't regulated by HIPAA. And there was a lot of interesting thinking going on about that, but it didn't get past that stage. And then those efforts seem to have stopped entirely. So put that aside for a second. Then you move ahead to 2018 and you have GDPR go into effect, and then you have California pass. And so companies all of a sudden started thinking about whether there should be a national U.S. privacy law. And they were driven by various motivations, some of which are inconsistent. There are lots of companies in the U.S., um, not necessarily in any particular industry, but lots of companies in the U.S. who believe that A, California is a problem, is going to stifle innovation, is going to be very difficult and expensive to comply with, and that there are going to be other states that are going to follow California and pass their own versions of these laws. I am personally skeptical of those other states at this point because of the quirky nature of how California law got passed, but put that aside for a second. They have said California is a problem, other states would be a problem, therefore we should have a national U.S. privacy law and it should preempt state law 
law or to remove the effects of state law. And so there are companies who are pushing for a national preemptive law, but a weak national preemptive law. Yep. There are other companies who have perhaps a broader perspective or a different marketplace view or whatever it is who say, we agree that there should be a national law. We would like to not have to deal with all these different state laws, but we would like to see a national law that would help us comply globally because it doesn't help us to have a U.S. standard that is dramatically different than the EU because then we still have challenges of moving data around the world. And so there are some companies, and you obviously mentioned Apple as an example, but they are certainly not the only one, companies who say, we'd like to see a U.S. national law that is roughly at the level of GDPR so that the Europeans will finally think that U.S. privacy protections are adequate so that we don't have to deal with all these data transfer issues that we have to deal with now. So there's lots of different motivations pushing for a U.S. national law at this point. It's just not clear to me that those motivations necessarily have a common ground meeting point. And therefore, I think, you know, I've been I've been saying that prior to 2018, we were at a zero out of 10 chance of a U.S. national privacy law. California's passage made it one out of 10 chance of a national privacy law. Having the, the Democrats take over the House maybe makes it a two out of 10, but it doesn't push it much higher than that, at least over the next, say, two years. Um, I think we're going to have a lot of debate. We're going to have a lot of discussion. We're going to have a lot of hearings. We're going to have a lot of white papers. We're, you know, It's going to be a very Washington problem for the next couple of years. But I don't think, other than the fact that we're now talking about it, I don't really think we're all that close to having a substantive agreement on what any of those national privacy provisions are going to look like. And it's not clear to me, you know, unless we come back next year, you know, you invite me back 20 episodes from now rather than 120 episodes from now. <laughs> um, it's not clear to me that unless we have, you know, five states that pass California-like privacy laws, it's not really clear to me that there's going to be enough pressure to get consensus that we're going to have an effective U.S. law. But, you know, again, I, I've certainly been wrong on predictions before. But, you know, unless we see Massachusetts and Pennsylvania and New York and Michigan and Ohio pass some kind of a law like that, I'm not sure we have enough agreement yet, even with un, even within the industry side, before we start to have industry debating with consumers and, and others. Yeah, I'm not going to take that bet. I think two and 10 is a, is a pretty solid uh, <laughs> prediction, though. Of course, remember when um, Texas just came out of the weeds that time with its um, state health privacy statute yes. that we hadn't really expected. So we've only got a couple of minutes left, and I want to take you, if, if I may, into the weeds in our last few minutes. Recent cases and settlements in the HIPAA privacy security breach notification space. What got your attention? What got your client's attention? So a couple of things have been going on. One is that we've actually had very little enforcement over the last two years. That's been raising some questions and, and you know, companies I think are legitimately asking sort of what's the attention level coming out of the Office for Civil Rights at this point. We had a recent case, a big dollar case involved the Anthem security breach from a number of years ago. You know, it was a big number. It's not an, it's not a, I mean, it's a big number if you have to write a check for that. It's not a crazy big number. People in the healthcare field, particularly in the fraud area, are used to writing checks that have, you know, many, many, many zeros at the end of it. And so a $16 million fine in a fraud case wouldn't even generate a headline, I don't think. That's the, you know, by far the biggest HIPAA fine we've had so far. So that was an important case. Um, but again, not, not necessarily that surprising a case. Um, we had an interesting 
interesting case involving a hospital that had a reality TV show filmed inside the hospital. The second such case, I've been giving very sophisticated legal advice that says hospitals just don't do that. <laughs> don't bring a reality show into your hospital. Um, the government's definitely going to pay attention to that. Um, there was an unusual case where it actually was a contested HIPAA uh, enforcement action. Almost all the HIPAA enforcement actions have been uh, voluntary agreements. We had one where the defendant, it was a medical facility in Texas, actually resisted and went to administrative law judge. The administrative law judge, not all that surprisingly, agreed with the Office for Civil Rights, and we'll see whether the uh, defendant wants to push that further. But that's unusual just because we haven't seen that very often. Yeah, I, I, just on that, I thought my goodness, finally HIPAA has its own to me. You know, the fraud and abuse case that that that, that the hospital decided to the decided to go to the wall on. Well they went they went sort of close to the wall and we'll see how much they're really going. I mean the the the, the analogy on going to the wall would be the lab MD case, which had yeah. another four yeah. or five steps after the administrative law judge step. We'll see what happens with that. I I think there's still lots of open questions on how aggressive their enforcement is going to be. They have less staff, they have less budget. There's a whole new section in the Office for Civil Rights that has nothing to do with HIPAA that is occupying a lot of management attention. And so, you know, I'm just not sure where they're going on that. There's been a noticeable drop off just in the volume of enforcement cases. We may see some regulatory changes. There is uh, expected to be sometime later this month, maybe not till December, uh, uh, the start of a new rulemaking process. It's a request for information rather than a proposed rule that's going to deal with a couple of points in HIPAA. Some of them are, are remaining hangover holdovers, whatever you want to call them, from high-tech. Pretty impressive because the high-tech law was passed in 2009. We still have regulatory holdovers from high-tech. A couple of new proposals that are being thought about to reduce regulatory burdens under HIPAA. It's been very interesting, you know, at a time where there are all kinds of industries going to the administration and saying, remove regulatory burdens for us. The healthcare industry has not, for the most part, been doing that with HIPAA. And so the administration seems to be coming up with some of their own ideas for regulatory relief, even though the, so the industry isn't really asking for it. We're also seeing some pressure dealing as a fallout from the opioid crisis to encourage more information sharing from providers. Lots of question as to whether we really need a regulatory change on that. My personal view is that the regulations allow sufficient flexibility, but that people are often reluctant to share information. I'm not sure how you address that from a regulatory perspective. You're not going to force them to share information. HIPAA doesn't force you to do much of anything on right. sharing. So this is the, what you're talking about here is the so-called misalignment between HIPAA privacy and 42 CFR well, it's part not even, two. It, it's not even necessarily that misalignment. That misalignment's part of it, but OCR can't change 42 CFR part two. So I, I, would, I would love to see part two and HIPAA be totally aligned. They're not yet. But OCR is proposing to open up HIPAA a little bit more. That doesn't solve the misalignment question. That makes misalignment worse. But it's not clear that it's needed on the HIPAA side. I think HIPAA is flexible enough right now. I would, you know, I could certainly see more guidance and things like that. Yeah, that's what I've argued um, for. But, but for example, they're, they're looking at having some kind of a safe harbor if somebody, if a provider makes a good faith sharing of information. The safe harbor right now is A, the rule allows flexibility, and B, OCR just wouldn't take 
take enforcement action against them. So I'm not sure why you would put in a regulatory safe harbor for that. But um, so we're, we're going to see some developments on that. I don't think any of them are going to be, you know, game changers at all. The big open issue is the HIPAA counting rule. Nick, you mentioned earlier that there aren't that many rights under HIPAA. That's yep. for the most part true. One of the rights that exists that almost nobody uses is something called the accounting rule, which is a right to get a list of disclosures of information. HHS, who I generally think over time has done a wonderful job in writing HIPAA regulations, I think the single worst proposal they've had in the 15 years of the HIPAA privacy rule was the draft proposal to change the HIPAA accounting rule, which I think would have been a disaster for the healthcare industry with very little consumer benefit. They've now finally, seven years later, abandoned that draft and have to go back to the drawing board. I'm going to pay a lot of attention to what they come back with because that's still a really tricky issue. But again, we'll, we'll be seeing those regulatory developments over time. I think they will be you know useful and something to pay attention to, but not, not as I said, game changer. Uh, I was interested, uh, you, you mentioned the, the sort of staffing in these agencies. Um, uh, that certainly does seem to be an issue that's slowed down some of the required actions, reports under 21st century cures. Um, as you say, we've seen a slowdown in the, in the sub-regulatory guidance uh, arena as well as in actual enforcement. So uh, it's uh, it, it, what what used to be a, a very quiet little patch and then for a few years seemed to be uh, a pretty vibrant one does look like it's uh, it's quieting again. Yeah, and, and my, my concern on that, on the staffing level, has actually been somewhat substantive in the sense that I think for a, a lot of the years for the Office for Civil Rights, they didn't necessarily do a high volume of enforcement, but they did very thoughtful enforcement. And that was both, that, that yep. meant both when they did take action and often when they didn't take action. They were, you know, they recognized that, for example, the HIPAA security rule is not a perfection standard. And so if a company was subject to a security breach, they were able to go into OCR and explain what they had done and OCR would listen to them. And OCR had a sense of, you know, from their experience, whether this was a hospital that was following the norms or they were wildly out of line, et cetera. And so that kind of enforcement is thoughtful and takes a lot of experience and knowledge, but it's time consuming. And so one of my concerns has been that maybe with less staff, they won't necessarily do less enforcement, but that they might do less thoughtful enforcement. And that's a that's a potential concern. Now, to be fair, we haven't really seen that yet. You could look at a couple of cases that have come out that you sort of scratch your head a little bit and wonder why they happened. Um, they don't seem to necessarily be ones that, you know, necessarily in the past would have gotten enforcement. Even the 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 cancer center case that I talked about that, that where the company had gone to the, the mats a little bit, they had a couple of breaches, but they were very closely connected in time. And it's, you know, you could look at that and say, eh, I sort of wonder why that was a case. But that's something to watch again. Are we going to see a situation where a breach automatically results in a penalty? Historically, that hasn't been the case. You could have a breach even if you still had a good security program and OCR was willing to listen to that. I want to make sure that they continue to be willing to listen to that. And I think that's going to be important to watch. And that was the Week in Health Law. Thank you so much, Kirk. Uh, if people want to find you, where should they go? On, on Twitter? on the web where's your uh, newsletter well, I, and so on I certainly are, we have uh, I'm at Wiley Ryan W-I-L-E-Y-R-E-I-N dot com I have a, a website there we have our privacy and focus newsletter you can find me on Twitter at 
Kirk J. Nara work. And, you know, I do lots of writing and speaking on a variety of issues that I hope uh, Nick will be interested in going forward. So thank you very much for having me. Oh, it was great fun. Good to have you back. Show notes will be at tour.com. I'm at Nicholas Terry on Twitter. Thank you for joining me and have a legally interesting but healthy week. Thank you.